Yes. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about George Jones. The possum, they called him. Considered the greatest living country singer for decades. The favorite of no less than Johnny Cash. A guy with more records on the country singles chart than any other artist. 13 of which landed at number one. A roguish rhinestone cowboy whose drinking was the only thing as legendary as his recording career. A troubled man who loved the music and was made anxious by the fame. But this story isn't about George Jones. This is about Tammy Wynette, who... Well, you can't talk about George without talking about Tammy. She was the first country artist to go platinum. The owner of one of the greatest voices in that genre or ever. Her smash single, Stand By Your Man, remains one of the most iconic country songs ever recorded. And that's just one of her more than 20 number one hits, many of them songs she wrote. Tammy and George were the first couple of country music, their soulful duet, a dreamy foil to their calamitous seven-year marriage. She's simply one of the best there ever was. She broke into the macho, whiskey trucks and heartbreak industry at a time when it was near impossible for women to do so, opening the door for generations of female stars with her toughness, her tenderness, and her unbelievably powerful voice. This story is about a girl. They look so wholesome up there, Mr. and Mrs. Country Music. Tammy Wynette in a bright yellow sundress, her big blonde mane piled on top of her head. George Jones has his hair quaffed so carefully it hardly moves while he strums the guitar. Trading parts and trading glances, their harmonies warm, bright, and tight. Standing so close, they're practically kissing. So in love, you can hardly stand it. You'd never guess, taking in this fine performance, that George was fully smashed, drunk off his ass, that Tammy's standing close so she can whisper the words he's forgotten in his ear. You would never guess this thing would end with screaming matches and smashed whiskey bottles, with gunfire and divorce papers. Before there was Tammy Wynette, there was Virginia Wynette Pugh, a name her country star husband would later tease her for, holding his nose as if he smelled something awful. It was 1942, and Wynette, as she was called then, was the first and only child of Mildred and William Pugh. She never knew her father, a farmer and amateur musician who died of a brain tumor when she was nine months old. She was raised partially by her grandparents, who she called Mama and Daddy, Mildred would be referred to as mother. She grew up picking cotton, singing songs in the field to pass the hours. Out in the blazing Mississippi sun, 
She fantasized about being a country singer. She let her mind travel to the stage of the Grand Ole Opry, as she imagined it to be. She could see herself up there with George Jones. She and her mother didn't agree on much, but shared an obsession with country music. Mildred had all of George Jones's records. He was one of their favorites, along with Hank Williams. Young Wynette played them over and over and over on her Mickey Mouse record player until she fell asleep each night, dreaming of someday getting out of her small town and making a record herself. That she would, in fact, become one of the defining voices of country, that she would perform and record alongside George Jones for decades, well, it was somehow impossible and inevitable all at once. A confluence of talent, ambition, and chance. But for now, the 200 miles between her sleepy rural town and the Opry stage at Nashville's Ryman Auditorium seemed infinite to Annette. Church was everything in her town, an area with no clubs and still dry back in the 1950s. Church was where you went to worship, to socialize, to find community, and it was the only place to go if you wanted to sing. At age 10 or 11, she started performing, first in little churches, then in bigger churches. Even as a kid, she had a hell of a voice, and people noticed. Mildred drove her on these tabernacle tours, then from talent show to talent show and eventually to the occasional live TV or radio performance. Now in her teens, it wasn't just George and Hank who Annette obsessed over. She loved men. The girl who would become Tammy Wynette always, always had a man. It was never a problem for someone so charming, popular, pretty, and good at telling stories. Boys were into Annette, and it was mutual. She was torn, though. The boys she met were all headed in one direction, and Wynette would be damned if she would end up a farmer's wife. She still dreamed of stardom, wanted to get the hell out of her dusty, cotton-picking, nowhere existence. But she'd also internalized the church's messages of faithfulness and servitude to your husband. One side of me needs singing and the life on the road, she said, but I was raised to believe in marriage as a woman's greatest fulfillment. But Wynette's increasingly frequent clashes with her mother finally tipped this balance, so she married her first husband, Eupel Bird, whom she only got around to, mind you, after dating his brothers and his dad. She dropped out of high school, just 17 years old. Eupel was 26. They had a couple of kids and settled into poverty. Wynette couldn't even afford a radio to hear the country music she loved. Eupel was a dead end as far as she was concerned. He kept losing jobs and moving the family around. She had a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized, treated with electroshock therapy. 20 years old, she'd already reached the bottom. Fuck this, she thought. She packed up their children, piled them in a 55 Ford with their stuff, and left. It would be life on the road for her. Singing. Stardom. Or bust. First came Birmingham, Alabama, and Birmingham TV, 
where she sang in country boy Eddie's band on WBRC. Her days were long, out of bed at 4 a.m. to sing on TV, then an eight-hour shift working at a beauty salon, followed most nights by sets at Lois's Horseshoe Lounge or the Pink Elephant, wherever there might be a band, a microphone, and an audience. By 1965, she was making trips back and forth to Nashville, dreaming and scheming about how to make her mark. The TV gig led to a 10-night tour singing back up for Porter Wagner, a huge country star, Mr. Grand Ole Opry himself, for which she got $50 a night. Surely, she thought, this was her break. But 11 days later, she was dragging herself back into the beauty salon. Before they divorced for good, Yupol came to see her in Birmingham. Wynette was Nashville-bound, inevitably, and, as she recounted, her soon-to-be ex-husband scoffed. So you're going to Nashville to be a hillbilly singer, huh? Yupol drawled. Hell, yes, she was. She made her decision, piled the kids in the car once again. Dream on, baby, he told her. Dream on. Legend has it that, a decade later, Yupal Bird would resurface when she came back to Birmingham to headline a show, hoping for an autographed photo from the now-famous singer. Dream on, baby, Wynette signed the glossy print. Love, Tammy. Being a woman in music is tough as hell. Being a woman in country music in the 1960s, that was damn near impossible. Men bought the records, went the thinking, and they wanted to hear men singing about man problems, not the women left heartbroken in their wake. Offers and opportunities for women were scarce, and for every successful woman, there were 20 men. Country radio DJs weren't even allowed to play women back-to-back. Wynette struggled, from audition to audition. Someone would give her a break. She knew it in her heart. She had it. She knew she did. But auditions were received with indifference. Meetings turned up nothing. Interested parties eventually weren't. Over at the Nashville offices of Epic Records, Billy Sherrill had just recently found his own footing. Sherrill would go on to be a legendary country songwriter and producer, the Phil Spector of country music, minus the megalomania and murder. But he'd come up as a rock and roll guy, blues, R&B. He'd moved to Nashville to run a studio for Sam Phillips of Sun Records, but that closed down pretty quickly. Epic picked him up, and he was finding some success marrying his pop music techniques to country. When Wynette came in to audition, Billy Sherrill was no more or less open-minded or inclined to sign her than any other music biz dude in town. But he gave her a fair hearing. Thinking she was a songwriter, he gave her a guitar to play a few. He wasn't impressed with the material, but liked her voice. He was also affected by her story of failed auditions, many of which ended with producers trying to get her into bed, and he felt motivated to right this wrong, to demonstrate her talent. Cheryl soon heard a song on the radio that he thought would be perfect for her. She cut it the same night, and he signed her. He gave her a new name, too. Neither Wynette Bird nor Wynette Pugh had much juice to it. Tammy Wynette. Now that was a name for a country star. 
in 1966. Apartment number nine, the song Cheryl had picked for her, became her first single. The anguished tune about a woman waiting, lonesome, in the room where her love left her, just missed the top 40, peaking at 44 on the country charts. But people took notice. Women loved it, and it was cited as a favorite by Loretta Lynn and future star Dolly Parton. And crucially, men really liked it too. Influential figures like Merle Haggard and Tammy's old favorite, George Jones. Her voice was finally out there. By the next year, four of her singles would reach the top ten. Three would climb all the way to number one. Cheryl co-wrote Your Good Girl's Gonna Go Bad and I Don't Wanna Play House for her. And they were both hits, the latter earning her a 1968 Grammy Award. Turns out there were women in the country music audience, much to the befuddlement of the Nashville establishment, and they craved a feminine voice, someone to articulate their hurt and tell stories of their heartbreak, women who were moving into the workplace and turning out with their own spending power. And Billy Sherrill's accessible, pop-adjacent productions brought new fans to the genre. Tammy and her music filled a vacuum before anyone realized it was there. She was saying that hurt and heartbreak for decades, sell it with her expressive voice. She would also begin to live it herself. D-I-V-O-R-C-E. That's the name of one of Tammy's first big hits. It's what we now know to be absolutely classic Tammy Wynette. A heartbreaking song about a marriage ending, told from the tragic point of view of the female divorcee-to-be. The song's gimmick is that she's spelling out the words too sensitive for her young son to hear. Divorce. Custody. Hell. Released in 68, it was a number one hit that same year, earning Tammy another Grammy nomination. And it's the song George Jones showed up at her place singing one night. Tammy had married again to a guy called Don Chappell. Don was a singer-songwriter too, and a producer, but their wedded bliss lasted all of eight months. Around that time, Tammy finally realized young cotton-picking Virginia's dream doing shows with George Jones, and eventually doing a little more than shows, too. George Jones was not a subtle man by any stretch, and he had eyes on the tall, blonde drink of water with the yearning voice who'd been sharing his microphone. For years, people have whispered that I took Tammy Wynette from behind Don Chapel's back, George wrote later. That's a lie. I did it in front of his eyes. Jones was still a huge star. He just had a number one hit in Walk Through This World With Me. And now Don found himself between a rock star and a hard place. He and Tammy could use Jones's celebrity to propel her career, and by extension, his own. The cost, though, was Tammy spending more and more time with George, sharing the stage, sharing rides on the road, sometimes even sharing motel rooms. You didn't have to look hard to see what was happening and what would happen next. What happened next was that Jones turned up at Tammy and Don's one night. 
He was, as always, a few in the bag, and Tammy'd been playing his record of when the grass grows over me on a loop. Don, sensing what was going on behind his back as well as in front of his eyes, grew irritated. Then I rate and called Tammy an impolite word. That's when George lost it. In a fury, he overturned the dining room table, professed his love for Tammy, and dropped all pretense that theirs was a strictly professional relationship. I love her and she loves me, don't you, Tammy? Yes, Tammy realized at that moment. She loved George Jones. They took the kids and walked out. That was that. D-I-V-O-R-C-E for Tammy and Don. Well, it was an annulment, actually, but that doesn't make for a very good song. The new couple flew to George's place in Lakeland, Florida to start their life together. Having already toured and performed together, they officially began booking as a duo. Their first show as a real deal couple was in Atlanta, and it set the pace for years to come when a drunken George walked off stage and got on a plane for Vegas, abandoning Tammy to a hostile crowd. A few days later, he got back and said he'd never marry her. A few days after that, he told her to put on a nice outfit. They were going to the courthouse to get married. That February of 1969, they tied the knot. Tammy Wynette was officially the first lady of country. They soon had a daughter, Georgette. In 1971, they started recording duets, something they could only do after George bought himself out of his contract and moved over to Epic Records. Their relationship was the music. They sang songs about being in love, being married, and being in love with being married. Songs with names like, I'll share my world with you, and let's build a world together. Their names became increasingly entwined. Tammy Wynette and George Jones. George and Tammy. Just sounds like it belongs on a marquee, doesn't it? Fans loved it. They love the music and they love the story. Never mind its complicated, messy origins. But Tammy was forging a career on her own, outside of her famous husband. Lots of these songs were about being married. Singing my song is all about how far she'll go for the man who wears her ring, the ways to love a man, which is about, well, the ways to love a man and how easy it is to lose one how quickly that can happen. This was Tammy's beat, and she did it better than anyone. Songs of love, devotion, loyalty, tragedy, all carried by that voice, quivering but powerful, mournful but strong. Billy Sherrill famously described her as the girl with the teardrop in her voice, a certain sorrow that wound its way through every line. Tammy was constructing a mythology intertwining her personal life and her music. But the sorrow was real. It had always been in her, a void masked by her ambition. She was the Country Music Association's top vocalist every year from 1968 to 1970. Her greatest hits, released just three years after she launched her career, went gold and eventually platinum. Her career clearly thrived on the public's fascination but none of this made George any more reliable. As a performer and a partner, George was volatile, 
complicated, confusing. He was as stubborn as Tammy was and even more unpredictable. The one thing they didn't have in common was the drinking. Tammy just didn't understand the appeal. George's days were mostly the same. A few Bloody Marys in the morning, a few beers in the afternoon, and by evening, it was time to get serious with some Jack and Coke. Though Tammy quipped of their marriage, he nipped and I nagged. It was not such a lighthearted affair. George would get on a bender and disappear, sometimes for days, missing shows and getting the couple sued more than once. He traded nicknames from the possum, a reference to his stubbly hair and pointy nose, to no-show. When he did show, it was magical for fans, this real-life country fairy tale. They sang just a hair away from each other and from the microphone, which had the benefit of making them look like a couple blissfully in love. It was also a requisite. Tammy would whisper George's lines to him because by the time each evening rolled around, he'd be too far gone to remember them. George was no easier to record with. His takes were all over the map, never singing a song the same way twice. So on songs like Take Me, their solution was to have George sing his part, then have Tammy go in and match her vocals to his. Tammy knew the value of a good public face, and she wanted to meet her fans, sign autographs, connect. She was the queen of country, and part of the job was meeting her constituency, smiling gratefully and graciously. George, on the other hand, did not give a shit. He had a bad reputation that was getting worse for being a drunk on stage and then hustling off it. It didn't really cost him anything, though. Country fans in the 70s were not about to come down on a guy for enjoying a drink or tin, or for being a rebel. And while Tammy may have suffered in private, her self-styled image as a sympathetic romantic figure standing by her man was only enhanced by her trials. They were as popular as ever. Their timing was good. Thanks in part to the records they made with Billy Sherrill, Country was just starting to edge into more mainstream music circles, and the music press started to take it more seriously as an art form. But George Jones was troubled. It's hardly a surprise that a man called No Show didn't really like touring, or even being on stage. He avoided crowds and fans, gave yes and no answers to reporters, and was taciturn at best. Like a lot of alcoholics, he drank with purpose, down a few and you won't feel so anxious anymore. It was his tried and true system, but the kind of system only works for so long. A few drinks a day quickly spilled into a dozen per sitting. It's not far from there to all-day, everyday drinking. Tammy's partner was refusing to perform more often. He didn't just bail on gigs to go get drunk. No, George Jones would leave the venue, the city, and sometimes the state. He'd hole up in a cheap motel somewhere for an extended stay with takeout and a few bottles of whiskey. Even when they got booked on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, George didn't want to go. The thing is, it's not clear if George Jones ever wanted to be a famous country singer, so he was never afraid of losing it. He told Billy Sherrill, Look, 
As long as I can go into a Holiday Inn with a guitar and make a living, nobody's going to push me around. Tammy, though she excelled in the spotlight, had the same undercurrent of anxiety and fear. She had the stage fright, but wanted the stardom. What plagued her was something more like imposter syndrome in a time long before that word would come into the lexicon. While she had believed deeply in herself as a hungry unknown, her position at the very top caused her to second-guess herself, and as her quest for stardom was satisfied, the emptiness she'd been running from her whole life began to gnaw at her. Her husband and partner's dangerous instability could not have helped matters. George's drinking was getting worse, not better, despite her efforts. Tammy would laugh it off in public, but she was scared. Is George Jones gonna die on my watch? She thought there was a better-than-average chance he'd get drunk and die in a car crash, and it's quite honestly shocking that he didn't. She would ask his friends for help finding him, and on one such night they found him hanging from his car after pulling over to vomit and passing out door open and engine running. Another night, he wanted to go into town to get a drink. Tammy threw all the car keys into the bushes, so George took his riding lawnmower to the bar instead. He accused Tammy of trying to poison him when he was sick for a few days. At one point, Tammy had divorce papers drawn up just to scare him, she said, but it sent him into such a rage that he punched through a window and wound up in the hospital. At one point, Tammy had divorce papers drawn up just to scare him, she said, but it sent him into such a rage that he punched through a window and wound up in the hospital. And George denied it until his death, but Tammy swore he fired a shotgun at her during one of his drunken moods. Through it all, they recorded album after album after album, seven records of incredible duets during the time they were together. In 1973, they had their first number one single together with We're Gonna Hold On, a track written by George's best friend, Peanut Montgomery. And they really did try. One of their most fantastically fun songs, We're Not the Jet Set, came out early the following year. But by that fall, they were fighting nonstop. Their recording sessions were the height of dysfunction. The marriage could not be saved. On January 8th, 1975, Tammy filed for divorce. For real this time. George and Tammy sang about being married, being in love. It was kind of their whole thing. To fans, the marriage was part and parcel of the duets. So the divorce was brutal on them both. And not just the heartbreak. Beyond that emotional toll, there was the business to think about. George and Tammy had been booked as a package deal, and promoters were canceling shows when it became clear that was a non-starter. George's fans were known to take their disappointment and their country hero out on Tammy, heckling her while she performed without him. Tammy threw herself into songwriting, and she and George kept recording together. In 1976, she'd have four number one singles, back to back to back to back. First was Till I Can Make It On My Own and You and Me, both about George. And then came two duets with George, Golden Ring and Near You. Tales of love lost, marriages broken. The songs, as always, reflected their journey 
as always, the fans couldn't get enough. While he went on benders, she went on stage. But the same gender bias double standard that made it hard for Tammy to break into the industry hurt her again. She had to look better and more put together. She had to get up there and take the heat. Each was lost without the other. There will never be anyone else for either of us, George told reporters. They stopped recording together. George kept drinking, discovered cocaine, and his career faded. Tammy got involved with a number of men and married what must have been the two sketchiest among them. But she launched top ten hits throughout the end of the 70s. Then, as her career began to flag in 1980, George, to everyone's surprise, released He Stopped Loving Her Today, a smash hit, number one on the country charts, widely considered one of the greatest country songs of all time. He remarried to a woman who helped him keep away from drugs and even got sober, more or less. Tammy was still a fan favorite, more in the public eye than George, but mismanagement caused the hits to dry up. A number of serious and chronic health problems led to a painkiller addiction. In 1993, she was hospitalized for a life-threatening infection. She pulled through, and when she woke up, there at her bedside was the possum. His wife Nancy had all but forced him to go, but he was glad he did. He told Tammy they had to record one more record together. They got along great. They started with a re-recording of Golden Ring, and Tammy was nervous because she couldn't sing that high anymore, but didn't want to admit it. When she got to the studio, it was George who decided to lower the key. Well, George, she said, if you need to lower the key, go ahead. They were both in poor health at the time, but the resulting album, 1995's One, is a fitting cap to their momentous partnership. They trade the very high end of their voices for a grainy, soulful depth, and they still outsing any duo in country music, putting to shame the glossy, empty, pedal steel pop that was passing for country in the 1990s. They embarked on a tour and were both thrilled to be with each other again, laughing and bickering and singing about it all, part and parcel. They hit a high point on stage at the Grand Ole Opry, singing together at the microphone, just as young Wynette Pugh had dreamed while picking cotton in the sun. Tammy's health continued to decline. Following years of pain and more than 25 major operations, Tammy Wynette passed away in 1998 while sleeping on the couch in her Nashville home. The Country Hall of Fame inducted her that same year. Tammy Wynette once famously said, the sad part about happy endings is there's nothing to write about. She had happiness, but enough sadness for an incredible catalog of songs. Her success made it clear that women could make it in country music and make it big. Suddenly a wave of female singers entered the scene. Tammy's ability was the kind of natural, innate thing that's hard to explain or understand. A talent that just is. But her melancholy was the same. A bottomless and inexplicable thing, always there inside her, is what made her sound so mournful, whether she was singing about standing by her man or losing him or anything else. She was a woman of contradictions, 
Campy but heartfelt, downtrodden but noble, tragic and courageous, kind and troubled. She loved to shop, and she loved to bargain. She was both the jet set and the old Chevrolet set. She kept a handful of cotton from her family farm and an expensive crystal bowl in her house. Tammy never did quite realize how beloved and respected she was. The imposter syndrome plagued her to the end. Friends say she and George never quite got over each other, as he predicted in the wake of their divorce. On long drives, she'd play his music over and over. That their marriage didn't work only made the song sadder still, lent a little more authenticity to the Tammy and George mythology. He outlived her, incredibly. George was married four times, just one fewer than Tammy Wynette. Though you'll notice that unlike Tammy, it doesn't tend to come up when people talk or write about him. George racked up even more hits late in life, and he earned a 1999 Grammy. In 2012, he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. He is arguably the greatest male vocalist country music has ever known. But this story isn't about him. This is about Tammy Wynette. Driven, complicated, enigmatic, and arguably the greatest female vocalist country music has ever known. This story is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by Emily Castle. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and additional writing by Scott Janovitz. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com.